Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers today. and jump at that. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello and welcome to another episode of Countrywide. I'm your host, Tina Quinn, coming to you from Beerapai Country, Port Macquarie. Coming up this week... Statistics such as 30% of farmers wanting, trying to, to do self-harm or, or contemplate suicide is just confronting. A damning report on the mental health of our farmers sparks calls for urgent government action. And... Pigs are the most intelligent and the most emotionally aware animal that we raise. And they also tend to be raised in the worst conditions, which I struggle to understand how we take this animal that is as emotionally aware and as intelligent as a dog and cram them into concrete pens indoors and they never see the light of day. That was Sarah Groom, one of many pork farmers across the country who've expressed their horror at alarming footage allegedly captured in an Australian abattoir. We'll hear more from her shortly. But first this week, the Prime Minister has paid tribute to who he describes as Australia's best minister for primary industries that we've ever had. John Caron was an agricultural policy elder statesman, economist and Labor minister during the Hawke and Keating governments. He passed away this week at the age of 85. And while he will be remembered for removing tariffs and ending protectionist systems, John Caron said that scrapping the wool reserve price scheme was the hardest decision in his career. Charlie Massey is a wool grower on the Monaro and author of Breaking the Sheep's Back. He told Josh Becker that Karen's legacy is secure as Australia's best agriculture minister. I would endorse a lot of the comments coming out that he probably was our best primary industry minister and a reforming one at that. I got to know him when I wrote the book on the collapse of the floor price scheme called Breaking the Sheep's Back. Um, I found him both then and before a a fine, thoroughly decent human. And, And they're right, he was a reforming primary industry minister in the Hawke government because it was he that led the dismantling of protectionism that had been set up, you know, from McEwenism in the 1920s right on. Uh, and, you know, things like helping to remove tariffs on agricultural products and the instigated measures to boost farm productivity. And, and really, he did that through... He was the uh, Prime Minister Minister who established the, the Rural Research and Development Corporations. And so he shifted the emphasis to marketing and R&D and you know, he started that with the AML, AMLC and then moved on to wool, etc. And unfortunately, uh, probably one of his few major mistakes was in wool because what happened was it was really agri-politicians that gained the power to set the reserve price scheme price level. And uh, what he missed out at doing in the late 80s was getting a ministerial sign-off when the agri-politicians got the power to set the price. And Largely through zealots and the New South Wales Farmers Federation on the Wool Committee, they set an extractive price with their view that the customer was always the enemy. And eventually, um, Karen was late in lowering the floor and, and gaining more power and we led to the collapse of the floor price scheme. He um, said that it was the hardest decision of his career around the collapse of the wool reserve price scheme and there was no alternative because the industry refused to see what was inevitable and, and were prepared to break themselves in the process. Absolutely right. You know, and I, when I interviewed Paul Keating, the then treasurer, 
he, he just said, look, um, the, the, the national financial accounts are about to be destroyed and we just had to chop it. And so uh, it was Keating that chopped it because he could see what it was doing to the national economy. It was it was really the zealots on the New South Wales Farmers Federation uh, Committee, Book Committee in particular, who drove it. Had a very wry sense of humour, Karen, and, and he did liken politics to farming, saying uh, no one's forced to do it, but someone has to. That was Charlie Massey, a wool grower on the Monaro and author of Breaking the Sheep's Back. He was talking there to Josh Becker about John Caron, the former agricultural minister in the Hawke government, who died this week, aged 85. Well, a story which aired on the ABC's 7.30 program this week raised many questions about the practice of using CO2 gas to slaughter pigs in Australian abattoirs. The gassing technique is generally considered the most humane possible method and it's deemed industry-wide best practice in both Australia and the United States. But many pork farmers say they were upset and disturbed with the footage, which appeared to show pigs squealing, gasping for air, and in some cases foaming at the mouth and writhing in distress. Sarah Groom and her husband Aaron run Homemade Healthy Happy Farm on the New South Wales mid-north coast which they began as a way to provide an alternative to large-scale producers. It's a small farm which turns off only 30 pigs per year. Their pigs roam outside with little containment, no tail docking, no forced weaning of piglets and no castration. But Sarah says there needs to be a nuanced discussion when it comes to pig production. Pigs are the most intelligent and the most emotionally aware animal that we raise for meat and they also tend to be raised in the worst conditions of all the animals that we raise for meat, um, which I struggle to understand how we accept that as a society, that we take this animal that is as emotionally aware and as intelligent as a dog and cram them into you know, concrete pens indoors and they never see the light of day. Tell me how you felt when you had a look at some of the videos that aired on, on 7.30, videos of how pigs are often slaughtered, how they're often killed in abattoirs here in Australia by carbon dioxide. Mm. It's obviously really confronting. I don't think anyone can look at that fo- footage and not be upset and disturbed by it. It's quite confronting and upsetting. You know, that was my reaction as well. It's not nice to see an animal go through that kind of stress at all, whatever the reason. I think that footage like that is important for keeping industries accountable, but I think that we also need to recognise that that's not necessarily how it always happens, and that is the more extreme end of how pigs can respond to carbon dioxide. There's certainly plenty of pigs that don't react at all, that just quietly Mm -hmm. go. And that's part of why the carbon dioxide method is seen to be one of the more ethical options out there for slaughtering a pig. But obviously that level of distress for that many pigs that we saw in that footage is an indication that we should maybe reconsider how things are being done. What kind of concerns do you have when when you're sending them off to be slaughtered at an abattoir? Are you happy with the practices that that they're implementing or that they're using, utilising? Am I happy with the practices? I don't know because it's really hard to get on the floor of abattoirs in Australia, which is an unfortunate thing. But is there another option currently? No. Um, Essentially, every abattoir in Australia is using the carbon dioxide method. There may be some small ones that are not, but for the most part, the carbon dioxide method is the go-to for pigs in Australia. Part of that is because it's considered an ethical option. The other part is that it's 
quicker and easier to do groups than one at a time as well. So there's that sort of productivity side of things. And that is where we've kind of been boxed into a system where pigs are being processed at large scale abattoirs and how you might process them at smaller scale abattoirs might be different. But we have to fit in with the rules and the way things are done. So what other what other ways are there of slaughtering a pig as opposed to carbon dioxide? The other, the only other real option is to stun, which typically uses a captive bolt, which is not a gun that doesn't kill the animal, but it is a quick bit of metal that quickly juts out and bumps them with force in the middle of the forehead. Well, that sounds much quicker and in some ways more ethical. It is, yeah, in the sense that it's a quicker moment. But pigs are quite different from any other animal that we raise for meat. And in particular, pigs really respond with a lot of stress by being separated from the group. So to stun and stick an animal, you have to actually take them one at a time into a chute so that you can hold them still to get the stun in the right position because obviously you don't want to have to do it a second time. You want to do it right the first time. You can't do that in a group environment. So it's a bit of a trade-off between the extended stress to separate one pig at a time from the group which is stressful for pigs in particular in a way that it's not stressful for cattle and for chickens so you'd have to either do that and then you have a longer amount of stress for each pig or you put them in groups where they are less stressed and then you do the carbon dioxide method and what we saw on that footage whilst I really want to be clear that it's horrific and graphic and unacceptable and something that I think the industry really needs to consider strongly. It's not how it happens for all pigs all the time. That's the end, the you know, extreme end of the possible reactions to carbon dioxide. So for a lot of pigs, it's much more peaceful than that. But either option involves stress. So it becomes a matter of then balancing which one is least stressful for the most number of pigs. So in an ideal world, what would what would you like to see? Is, are these really the only two options that we have for, for slaughtering pigs? Because neither sound particularly ideal. Mm, yeah, I think it's um, a really complicated question. They are the only two options in the current system that we have. But ideally, you know, if, if we're talking ideal world scenario, what I would love to see is that on-farm slaughter and processing of animals can become well, first of all, legal, because it's currently not, to do that and then sell the meat. So first of all, for that to become a legal practice, an approved practice that has some governance over it, so you know people are taking responsibility for food safety in that situation, but also for it to actually be achievable and affordable, because in Australia, a lot of our farms are quite spread out from one another. So to take... Um, you know, a little mini abattoir on the road and move it from farm to farm, there's a lot of costs involved in that. So it's it's currently not a financially viable solution in a lot of cases. And it's also just really difficult with the regulations that we've got, which are designed for big stationary abattoirs. The other in-between option, in between your, our current big abattoir system and our small scale or, or our um, home kill option is to have many local small-scale abattoirs that are situated on farms. So that would be a stationary abattoir, but small-scale, which 
when you make things bigger and you involve more and more pigs from other farms, the pigs will get more stressed. So having a small-scale abattoir kind of takes away from some of that stress a little bit so that things like stick and stun become less stressful than they are in the big abattoirs and therefore a more viable option compared to your carbon dioxide processing. But we need to not be taking pigs that far to, to be processed. Because I'm sure that travel would also really be quite a stressful experience for them. Yeah, and I think that's something that we need to look at with, particularly now that we've seen this footage of this carbon dioxide reaction for some of these pigs, is what are the other factors that are involved that are causing these pigs in particular to stress out in that situation so much where other pigs don't with carbon dioxide. Um, and so there's certainly things like how stressed are the pigs already when they go into that chamber? Have they travelled very far to get to the abattoir? Have they been off their food for that long period of time because they're travelling? The biggest thing that we can take away from this is that as a consumer, we have a responsibility to think about what we're purchasing and that you know our money goes a long way in terms of a vote for what we want the food system to be like. Um, if you're not comfortable with the ethics of the product, don't buy it, but also seek out an option that makes you feel better about where you're spending your money because those options do exist and I think they should be rewarded by consumers purchasing from them and celebrated and part of this discussion around what can we do better for the animals that we're raising for human consumption. Sarah Groom from Homemade Healthy Happy Farm on the New South Wales Mid-North Coast speaking with me there. Coming up, we'll dive into that report, which revealed damning statistics about the mental health of Australia's farmers. And we'll hear from the Federal Environment Minister, Tanya Plibersek, about her efforts to introduce a biodiversity credit scheme. That's next on Countrywide. You're listening to Countrywide, across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio. Well, farmers and Indigenous rangers are a step closer to being paid to protect nature, paid to plant native trees and look after endangered animals like koalas. The federal government this week introduced legislation that would establish a biodiversity trading scheme. Federal Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek says that the new scheme will help Australia improve its environment by rewarding landholders. Speaking on a farm outside Canberra, Kath Sullivan asked the minister how the government's legislation differs from the biodiversity stewardship pilot launched by the former coalition government. Well, the coalition did have a proposal that would only apply to farms. We've got legislation that would allow any landholder to engage in projects like this, protecting remnant bushland, uh, restoring damaged areas, repairing you know, the surrounds of the dam in this case. Uh, so that can be farmers, it can be private landholders, uh, it can be uh, First Nations people on Indigenous protected areas, for example. We've got a much broader, uh, we've got a much broader range of landholders that can participate, and we've also substantially increased the integrity measures. We need to make sure that if people are investing in repairing nature, that we actually get those long-term benefits. Why do you have to pay people to be good custodians of the land? Well, I think a lot of people are very good custodians of the land and a lot of the work that's been done on this farm has been done over decades because the farmer is committed to restoring nature uh, on their family property. What we're hoping to see is a capacity to do that at scale instead of relying on a small grant here or there or a program that starts one year and finishes the next. 
we can do this at scale and over a long period of time. And that's when we'll see real nature benefit. As a government, we're committed to seeing 30% of our land and 30% of our oceans protected by 2030. And this can make a contribution to that goal as well. We know that uh, a lot of Australia is privately owned. And if we are only doing nature conservation in national parks or other government-owned areas, we won't get the nature benefits that we need. What nature benefit do you expect from, from this legislation, essentially? Well, we see a capacity here for private companies, private individuals, in some cases perhaps the government to invest in nature protection and repair on a big scale over a long period. And the, the benefits of that are obvious. These, these projects will be specific to the type of landscape that we're talking about. So if you're talking about fencing off areas in the central desert and excluding feral animals and weeds so that marsupials and native plants can get a foothold again, you'll have a larger area than if you're investing in a project to renovate dams on farmland like the, the project we've been looking at today. And are you confident that there is a market for biodiversity certificate and it won't undermine the current carbon market? Well, this is absolutely complementary with the, the carbon market and we've learnt some important lessons from the Chubb Review into the carbon market. The first and most important lesson is we have to ensure integrity. We cannot allow any sort of greenwashing or it, it, we have to ensure that the benefits that are promised are actually realised. The second thing I'd say is, yes, we believe very strongly that there's an interest in investing in a market like this. It is a world first. We also hear directly from companies that they are interested in investing in nature repair. You say, why? Because it is a voluntary investment. Their customers demand it, their shareholders demand it, their staff demand it. And what about those farmers or landholders or rangers who have been doing the right thing? Uh, have they missed out on an opportunity to monetise what they've been doing? How do you prove the additionality and in a way that rewards people who have started years ago, not just starting because of this new market? Well, people who have been doing the right thing for years are already realising the benefit on their land. So by having better water quality in a dam that's been renovated, you see livestock put on weight more successfully. Uh, we've heard from the ANU scientists involved in this program is that you repay the cost of renovating your dam in three or four years with increased weight of livestock because they're drinking cleaner water, they're staying healthier. So people who've invested early have seen benefits on their own land and they're also in a great position to do more work on their land because they know what they're doing. And when could this scheme actually start? Well, we anticipate it'll start in about a year's time. We need to set up the market, set up the regular, develop the methodologies. What we're doing this week is passing the foundational legislation that will allow all of that work to commence. If it's supported by the parliament? Well, I, I very much hope so. I and mean, this is something that's supported by the National Farmers Federation, environmental organisations, uh, business organisations, financial organisations. It is a part of what we'll do to protect, restore and repair nature. Uh, and it's got very broad support. So I'm very hopeful that the parliament will pass it. The Federal Environment Minister, Tanya Plibersek, she was speaking there to our national rural reporter, Kath Sullivan. 
Well, a damning report on the mental health of Australian farmers found that nearly half of the more than 1,300 of those surveyed have had thoughts of self-harm or suicide, while 30% have attempted self-harm or suicide. The report commissioned by dairy cooperative Norco in partnership with National Farmers Federation has led to calls for urgent government action. Kim Honan has more. The report found that natural disasters were the main trigger for the decline in mental health, followed by financial stress, inflation and cost pressures, with 88% of farmers significantly affected by natural disasters over the past five years. Paul Weir's dairy farm outside Lismore was devastated by the floods a year ago. Those numbers are certainly confronting as a, as a farmer. Uh, through, through, the, through the flood in the last 12 months, um, where it's, it certainly cost... Yeah, myself and my family, our business over three over three million dollars in damages alone. The mental health issue. I've been one of the lucky ones. I've actually had four people who actually touch base on a regular basis just to ask how you're going. And I got no. I consider myself one of the lucky ones because I did have that. Look, some farmers that I've been talking to since the flood, and some closer friends that I that I know that really struggled. It was a struggle getting out of bed for those guys. It was a struggle to actually get up and, and face their commitments for the day, you know. Uh, or they, they just preferred to go away and sit quietly around in the back of the shed, so to speak, and, and just let everyone else get on with the jobs. They just couldn't confront it. And, um, uh, yeah, without, without a, a network of, of people to actually just sit down and have a chat with them and talk it through, I guess when they haven't got that, that's when the dangers of some of those really confronting figures actually you know, come to the forefront. The report found that 11% of farmers experiencing mental health challenges felt too embarrassed to seek or receive help. 17% didn't want to, while 15% reported difficulty in accessing suitable services in their community. The National Farmers Federation is calling on both state and federal governments to look at what mental health services were being provided and coordinate with other state entities to make sure no one was falling through the gaps. Warren Elvery from NFF. Well, we need more avenues where the farmers can talk to other farmers. We need to have other ways that they can communicate, whether there's um, through emails or through uh, other communications like that. I know we all listen to the, the rural report, we listen to the, the country hour, we hear what's happening around the place, but the farmers themselves don't have a chance to talk to other farmers and uh, I think that's something, I'm not sure how to do it, but something that needs to happen. The report found that more than three quarters of farmers felt their work was not being valued by the public. The CEO of Norco, Michael Hampson, says the findings are a wake-up call for Australia. We want to make sure that you know, statistics such as 30% of farmers you know, wanting, trying to, to do self-harm or, or contemplate suicide is just confronting. We want to change those numbers. This is the benchmark. This is the wake-up call for this country that we need to address. So we, we want to see this as the line in the sand, that we, we absolutely want to see improvement from this. We want farmers to feel valued. The confronting one for me is that 76% don't feel valued. We have to stop that. Like that, you know, if you're not valued, small things can become massive issues for people. And it's a big issue, it's a big problem that we've got to solve, but we can all take one small action. And that is to make sure that we support farmers, whether or not they're wheat farmers, they're tomato farmers, they're macadamia farmers, dairy farmers, by buying their products. 
by buying products from Australian farmers. Send the supermarkets a message. We're not interested in cheap imported agricultural products that devalue our farmers. Southeast Queensland dairy farmer Ross Blanche operates a helpline for farmers and he'd like to see more farmers trained in crisis support work. Three years ago, three and a half years ago, we um, started this Farmer to a Lifeline Farmer program where I've been able to help farmers and support them through crises, droughts, floods. But I just feel there's just not enough of me to go around all the farmers. The ones that I have been able to help I see a massive, their lives have changed so much for the better. To me it has to be, it has to be a farmer to farmer because the farmers have a different language. And Norco plans on doing just that, putting more Rosses on the phone to help struggling farmers. Michael Hampson. We're looking about extending that through our own people, our own field services people, key management people in our organisation and also looking to have some of our members who would like to do the work that Ross is doing, encouraging them and getting them through the the, the various training programs to help them, to help farmers and check in on a mate. Michael Hampson, CEO of Norco, ending that report by Kim Honan. Well, wool is used in many things we wear these days, but have you ever seen a wedding dress made out of wool? Well, one very persistent South Australian bridal designer is determined to take the fibre all the way to the altar. And as Landline's Kerry State discovered, her backyard provides plenty of inspiration. Adelaide Fashion Week, a rural woman is taking a bold step. In amongst the state's well-known couture names like Paolo Sebastian, designer Nikki Atkinson has launched a new bridal label, Horrocksvale. And all of her wedding dresses are made out of wool. It can be mixed with laces, it can be mixed with beading. You know, we can create some beautiful dresses and make them look like any other wedding dress, but it's wool. As a kid, Nikki spent more time trying to get out of wool than into it. I remember having a little pinafore when I was probably seven or eight. And all I can remember is it was thick, heavy and scratchy and itchy and I didn't like it. But the designer, who grew up on a farm, does have some fond memories of the fibre. I'd have to say when I first fell in love with wool was probably as a kid jumping in bales, you know, at shearing time and things like that because it was fun. It was loads of fun. But as a fabric, yes, it was certainly fashion school that I absolutely fell in love with it then. It is better than any other fibre that I have worked with. It's better than silks, your rayons. um, It's just so much easier. It's pliable. It it tends to want to drape well. It's easier to sew. Um, It's just, yeah, I haven't found any other fibre like this. Her passion for the fibre only intensified when she married a wool grower and moved to their sheep property in the Flinders Ranges. Yeah, when I get the sheep off the hill here, I'll be up behind them then. While Dallas Lines is happy to stick to growing the wool, he is excited to see his wife take the industry he loves in a new direction. People say that's really nice. What's that made out of? It's wool. Really? And that might stir things up. After running a bridal boutique in Adelaide for eight years, these days Nikki runs her design business out of Port Augusta. But until recently, her dream to design the ultimate woolly outfit, which started two decades ago, remained out of reach. 
when a girlfriend of mine was passionate about wool, came off of a wool marina property north of Broken Hill, and she wanted a wool wedding dress. We couldn't find ivory wool. We could find suiting fabrics. We could find other, you know, black, white, like navies, very general colours, but we just could not find ivory wool. But last year, on a girl's trip to Melbourne, she stumbled across a wool supplier who made her day. He had everything and I just fell in love then and there and I just was so excited that I couldn't believe that this was something that happened, it's giving me goosebumps, <laughs> something that happened 20 odd years ago and it was finally something that I'd found. How does it feel? Yeah, it feels really good actually. It's good. Yeah. And so began her quest to not just create glamorous gowns but also educate people on the versatility of wool across all seasons. For more on Nikki and another designer that's shaking up the wool industry, tune into Landline this Sunday at 12.30 on ABC TV. You can also catch the program on ABC iView. And that's it for Countrywide this week. I'm Tina Quinn, and if you're listening on digital radio, you can also find this program as a podcast to listen to later on. Just search for Countrywide on the ABC Listen app. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next week on Countrywide. This week on Landline, how about walking down the aisle in a woolly wedding dress? We can create some beautiful dresses and make them look like any other wedding dress, but it's wool. And restoring oyster reefs. There's absolutely no doubt that they're working, they're recruiting shellfish, and they're also supporting an abundance of marine life. That's Landline Sunday, 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. Ready for some fun? The Melbourne International Comedy Festival is back. And it all began with the gala, hosted by Luke McGregor. Thanks for clapping when I came out. That, that means a lot. <laughs> with an all-star lineup. We're all in this crazy mixed-up world together, though, aren't we? And now, thanks to unisex toilets, we actually are. The Melbourne International Comedy Festival. The gala. Excellent! Stream it now on ABC iView.